can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15. John, excuse me, chapter 15. Um, I would like to at this point give just a, a quick summary of where we're at in John 15 and then read the text. I do have a longer than normal introduction, but we'll get to that in a moment. Where we've been so far in John 15, we started in verse 1 and saw Jesus making and bringing up this illustration of a vine-branch relationship. And most pertinent in his illustration is that of, of a vineyard. The vine he's talking about is likely a comparison to grapevines through which they would grow to harvest to make wine and other things. And he's saying that the Father, God the Father, is the one who's overseeing this vineyard. And we've seen that that vineyard is the church, His people. And Jesus has been telling us that the branches within this vineyard are the individual Christians that make it up. That we who are trusting in Christ are branches. And we've seen where every branch that's not bearing fruit, it's not producing fruit at all, is cut away and thrown into the fire. And those of us who are believing, who are producing any measure of fruit, not ourselves, but as God does it in us, God is going to faithfully, the Father will faithfully prune us that we produce more fruit. And we've seen how it's not our fruit bearing, our fruit producing in verse 3 that saves us. We're clean because of the words that Jesus has spoken to our souls. And taking the message of His Gospel and making us know we're clean because of Him. And then last week, that was the first message in this chapter. Last week we came to consider this reality of abiding in Christ. And the source of all of our fruit. And I've told a few people, if I were to summarize what I believe is perhaps the most significant thought from last week, it is this. When we saw that the Father, He is the vine dresser. He's the one pruning branches to produce fruit in them. And Jesus says, apart from Him and abiding in Him, you cannot produce any fruit. And when you put those things together, you realize that the Father's purpose and all the pruning He does in your life is that you would abide in His Son. It's, it's not primarily to drive you to pursue fruit bearing. It's to drive and direct you to His Son, to abide in His Son, and by Him produce fruit. And we saw that apart from Jesus, we can do absolutely nothing. The last verse we saw in verse 6 is that if anyone does not abide in Me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And we considered how this Statement, even in verse 6, Jesus is speaking to His disciples whom He loves. Judas has already gone out at this point. And so this is not a possibility for these He's talking to here. These people are secure. Jesus says, I'll lose none of it save the son of perdition. And the son of perdition has already gone out from them. So all of these disciples that are left make up His true disciples. So this verse 6 we saw at the end was this reminder of the kindness of God and what He's done for us. The fact that we this judgment is not awaiting us and what God has done in Christ is indeed the kindness of God that leads us to pursue abiding in Him and loving Him. And we'll pick up in verse 7 today and I'd ask you now if you're able to stand and we'll read verses 7-11 through 11 together and then pray once more. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, go with me once again to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, my God, I ask that You would be gracious to me now. Father, that You would be pleased to speak through me, to speak to those who belong to You, those who are they that make up Your vineyard, the branches, true branches connected to Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that You would produce fruit in us now. That You would prune those things which are distracting and hindering us from bearing fruit. Oh God, that You would give life, vitality, and nourishment to Your branches that they bear more fruit. Oh God, I pray that You would be with us now. Guard me from misspeaking. Oh God, we are those who believe this book, this very Word of Yours is living and active. And that it is alive and able to work mightily in us. To mold us and make us into what You would have us to be. Oh God, please do that work here today. I pray, Father, for power. That You would enable me to speak in a way that is utterly impossible for a man to speak without You. That the words that come forth would be according to Your Spirit and Your truth and a demonstration of Your power. Oh God, that we would know that You're with us. That we would know the presence of the living God here and now. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, I do have a longer than normal introduction this morning. But it's going to be very relevant. Before working through our verses, I want us to consider something. The, the, there's this truth that the reason that we study the Scriptures is in order that something would be produced in us. You get what I'm saying? We don't come together even at a time like this primarily just so that we would go away feeling glib or happy or like we belong to a group of people who enjoy hearing that kind of a thing. But many people will gather at a political event to hear a politician give a speech and they're united by some sense of camaraderie with each other. And church services are meant to be much more than that. Or you could go to a poetry reading and you could all enter in at an emotional level and enjoy what the poet has to say and have some sense of belonging because you all are enjoying the same thing. What we come together for in this place is that we would be changed on more than an emotional level, more than an intellectual level, and even more than just a practical level. We're meant to be changed in our souls, moved in the depths of your being to grow to a closer relationship with the living God. And so that leads me to some concerns I'd like to set forth before. You see, the modern idea concerning man in general, we're not talking about religious man, just every man. The modern idea and notion 
is that the primary way in which a person is going to be and should be influenced is through their emotions. And you know this is true. You watch a television ad and you'll see this lost, lonely little puppy and they'll say here and they'll stir your emotions by seeing this animal in a cage that looks so sad and they make their eyes look real big. And and I, I suppose that is sad, perhaps. But they'll try to motivate you to action through the emotions. And it's not limited to that sphere. We know the same thing happens in a political debate. Having a discussion just recently with some people, you'll notice that in years past anyways, it seems that the politicians actually talked about the issues in specific ways to deal with them. Anymore, you watch one of those things and it's basically just everyone trying to get their wow, gotcha moment. Their little five second clip of saying something that puts everyone in their place. Commonly referred to as the mic drop moment that your emotions would be kindled in the blink of an eye and there's not truth and logic and reason and a position being set forth that grabs hold of not only your emotions but your intellect and your convictions being stirred, not only your emotions. And you see these politicians, they stir up your emotions about existing frustrations in government and they lay the blame on everyone except themselves without ever actually addressing an issue. We move down the line, so we've got television stirring emotion, we've got politicians. What about liberal theologians who are totally committed to taking every thought captive not to obey Christ, but to obey the carnal passions of their listeners? They promise everything your heart desires, and they dismiss any charge concerning sin or biblical ignorance. And the way they do that is they make an emotional plea that twists and sears the conscience. If I want it, then I can come up with a reason for why it's okay that I have it. And that is what you see in the liberal theologians. But again, all of these things rooted in emotion. And lastly, consider the more conservative preachers. Many over the last century who have grabbed hold of this same methodology. And they've developed a style of communication that is primarily producing a commitment in their people towards their traditions. And keep in mind, not all traditions are bad. There are some wonderful traditions that aren't necessarily told us to do in this book. And yet they're good traditions. But there are many traditions with our, which are absolutely worthless. As my grandfather would say, worthless as a shirt without a pocket on it. Well, the point is this. What is to be the foundation of our convictions and our understanding? You see, it's not, it's not impressive to me if you show me a conservative-minded person who agrees with me politically or even scripturally agrees with me about a host of issues if they can't explain to me where these convictions are coming from. If someone says, I agree with you about this theology, but there's no depth in the Word producing that, all they've done is they've believed what someone's told them to believe. And I don't want any of you in here agreeing with me on a theological level just because I say so. You need to be able to look in the scriptures and work these things out for yourself. Which leads me to this question. Are emotions bad? I'm driving at logic, the intellect, the mind, the way you think and reason. Are emotions bad? Are we as Christians supposed to have full heads and empty hearts? Well... Let me read a scripture to you. All of this by way of introduction, mind you. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart 
to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. Now, this is what we see clearly even in this one verse. Biblical Christianity is meant to deal with the whole man. All of you is to be involved, not just the mind, not just the heart, not just practical obedience. All of you is to be wrapped up in this. We're meant to pursue, he says, to become obedient, but not only obedient, obedient from the heart. And the way that that heart is stirred, those emotions are stirred to obedience through the teaching, the standard of teaching to which you've been committed. All of these things. And we know we're going on to see in John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How is it you're to be changed? Devoid of your emotions? Absolutely not. But the truth is that which is supposed to stir your emotions and motivate you to go in obedience. It's the truth of God's word. And so in light of those things, in our text, in John 15, we're seeing God's truth, which is revealed in his word, is meant to sanctify and change us. Now I ask, what primary impacts are supposed to be had on us in our text today? In other words, what's the purpose of the verses in front of you? God makes clear in it that his word exists, that we would be sanctified, changed, moved, stirred in our souls. What specific ways as our text suggests that is supposed to be happening in us. Just as a, an overview at the beginning, verse 9, you see this of John chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So here we go. One of the, the, the reasons for our text today is that you and I would be abiding in the love of Jesus Christ. That's one of our aims as we work through these verses. The second thing we see in verse 10 that if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So, we're to be abiding in the love of Christ. We're to be keeping His commandments. The third thing we see is in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. Now that's very explicit. Do you want to know why do these verses exist today? Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The third thing is that you would have fullness of joy. And the last thing I argue is the foundation of all of this and really the purpose that's beyond and above and more ultimate than any of those things is verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Here it is. All to the glory of God. So the primary emphasis in all that we look at today is going to be this, that you and I know what it means to abide in the love of Christ and that we are abiding in his love and that our abiding in his love is producing in us a keeping of his commandments and that all of this is giving and producing in us great joy to the glory of God the Father. That is what we're after. And I tell you that at the beginning so that as we work through this, we see it's not primarily some detached emotional thing that's to produce that in you. It's the word set before you now as we rightly divide it. And that is my aim. And so, without any further ado, look with me beginning at verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, we have already been considering in part what it means to abide in Christ, haven't we? 
We've been looking at this abiding in light of John 14 and Jesus saying, I'll not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. I'm going to manifest myself to you that this abiding is is not it's not limited to only what you know to be true. There's an experience here. There's an experience wrought in us by the Holy Spirit where we know the presence of, as we sang, the risen Christ. We know him and he's in our lives. He's the living God. This abiding, we've looked at that. Okay? And one of the repeated benefits of experiencing the presence of Christ, and we've seen this as well already, for example, in John 14, 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We've seen one of the benefits of abiding in Christ is having your prayers heard and answered. And I would submit to you in verse 7 of John 15, that we're immediately able to confront two errors that people have when asking God for things. Here's the first error. There are those who come before God with an improper boldness and arrogance as they make their requests and they assume that God is at their beck and call to do whatever they please. We immediately see, and someone will say, look, Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So I just have to believe strongly enough and I'm going to get it. That's how people think. Well, in our text, Jesus says there's some qualifications for having your requests answered. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. And so the first error is immediately confronted and says, no, it's not whatever you want. If you're not abiding in him and his words not abiding in you, you can have no confidence that your request is going to be answered. The second error is found among those who seem to imagine that God is not interested in hearing their requests at all. And if he is, perhaps he isn't even able to give them what they desire. And again, in that, Jesus is saying, whatever you ask, whatever, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you, that we can have a hopeful confidence of being heard, that God actually does hear us. You see, both of these views demonstrate a radical ignorance of the Scriptures. God is both ready to hear us. He's fully able to answer us in power. But the source of our confidence in prayer is the immediate result of our knowledge of God and His Word. And it would be very easy at this point for us to see this Scripture, John 15, 7, as kind of a formula. You have some great need in your life. People view this think about fasting this way as well. And there's an intimate relationship between what I'm going to say now and fasting, but I'm not going to get into that today as far as the fasting side of it. But people see this and they think, if I want God to do what I'm asking then I need to figure out a checklist of things that God wants me to do. What are the quarters I need to put into the machine in order to get the gumball out? That's how people think about God. Oh, if I want to get what I want over here, then I need to abide in Him and His Word in me. Okay, Jesus, I love You. What's His Word say? Now hopefully I'll get what I want. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Listen to Psalm 37 and verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, do you hear that? Do you imagine, okay, there's this thing I want. How do I get it? Okay, I've got to really love God. You see, Psalm 37 and our text in John 15 are not telling you to pretend that you love God in order to make Him your own personal genie in a bottle. He's not saying to you, if you'll just do these checklists, 
then you can have anything in the world that you want according to your carnal desires. What he's saying in both of these scriptures, consider this. In Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. If your delight is in the Lord, your desires are going to reflect Him and His will. If your delight is in the Lord, He says, if delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. If your delight is in the Lord, He is the desire of your heart. If your delight is in God, He is what you want. The promise that God is making in that verse is that if you're des- delighting in God, He's going to give you the greatest gift of all, which is Himself. He's going to give you Himself. He'll not withhold that relationship with Himself if you're delighting in Him. And similarly, if you're abiding in Christ, if you're living with a conscious awareness of the Son of God's presence, power, and glory in your life, your greatest request is that you would know Him more. And your requests are going to reflect that. You see, the awareness that you have of Christ is not the result of a Buddhist meditation or man-centered introspection and self-examination. It is the result of what His Word reveals. Abide in Him and His Word. So the confidence we have is this. If I'm abiding in, in the Lord, if I'm abiding in Christ, and I'm abiding in His Word, then my wishes, my desires are shaped by that abiding. And so I can come and ask, knowing God has revealed this is what He desires. And I'll tell you this, that if you, you can have every assurance in our text that if you go to God and your prayer to the Father is that He would prune you to be more like Christ, you will have an affirmative and obvious yes. Yes, God will always answer that prayer. Yes. Anytime we pray according to the revealed will of God, the answer is yes. It may be a matter of time, circumstance, and the mysterious will of God, how that comes to pass. I can say with absolute confidence that if I pray, Jesus Christ, I pray that you would build your church among us. He's going to do it. We can have confidence in evangelism. God is going to do it. He promises that he will. Point is that our prayers ought to reflect what's been revealed in this book. Verse 8, John 15, verse 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You see, again, this verse does not exist in a vacuum. It's not separated or detached from all that Jesus has been saying. Remember, it's the Father who's the vine dresser. It's the Father who has a vested interest in this fruit being born in the vineyard. And this verse comes as somewhat of a qualifier and evidence to us of what Jesus was saying in the last verse. Imagine it this way. Imagine yourself a disciple of Jesus. Jesus says to you that whatever you ask, whatever you ask what you wish and it's going to be done for you. And you sit there and you think, okay, why would God listen to my request? Why would God answer me? On what grounds is God interested in answering my request? Well, Jesus is revealing in verse 8 that the very thing He's talking about us asking for has to do with our fruit bearing as His disciples. My Father's glorified in answering your request. You say, Father, glorify Yourself through pruning me and giving me fruit. He's glorified in it. You see, Jesus' words, they show us that the requests which are promised to be answered 
are intimately related to fruit bearing and the Father's glory. And the confidence that we're to have that the Father will hear and answer us is because He is the vine dresser. You know, many people don't think about the fact, this is just a side point, but in Matthew 7, we many times may quote the Scriptures that says, Ask, seek, and knock. That there's this promise given to the one who asks, they receive. The one who knocks, it's opened up to them. You see this asking, seeking, and knocking. Did you know it comes in the context in Matthew 7 of fruit bearing? It comes in the context of really this picture of you, you're familiar with judge not lest you be judged. The whole context there is don't try to sanctify an unbeliever at the end of that. This context comes in and says if they're lost, they cannot grow in the grace of God if they're lost. And so when we come to this picture of asking and seeking and knocking, the promise is it's going to be done to you. And the immediate context has to do with your fruit bearing and your growth in Christ. And so I wonder, do our prayers reflect this? Are the, the majority of our requests to God, are they connected to His purpose to prune us and produce more fruit in us? In other words, are we praying, Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. The Lord says that's the way we pray. And that starts with us as individuals. It's as though we're praying, Father, Thy will be done in me. In me. Thy kingdom come in me. Change me. That's the context of what Jesus is saying when it comes to our prayers and the promise of bearing fruit. He says to us in this verse that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It's worth mentioning that our fruit bearing does not make us disciples of Christ. He says, and so prove to be my disciples. Your fruit bearing is never going to make you a Christian. It is only ever going to be the evidence that you are one. And I, I can already, I, I just want to go ahead on record here and answer an age-old philosophical question right here and right now. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the chicken came first. How do I know? Well, because the chicken lays chicken eggs. It's because the chicken was created by God in order to lay eggs. And the eggs are just a, a necessary outworking of this chicken that God has made. And that may seem like a silly illustration, but here's the point. Our fruit bearing is because we are disciples. The fruit merely proves or demonstrates that we are disciples. Verse 9, we press on and it says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I've titled this sermon today, Abide in His Love. These next words from the mouth of the Son of God have got to be some of the most incredible and almost unbelievable words ever uttered. If you hear Jesus say to you, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. If that doesn't cause you to be taken aback, to pause and say, how can that be? You're not understanding what he's saying. You're not understanding who this infinite and eternal Trinity is. And you're not understanding your own sin and depravity. If it's easy for you, apart from the grace of God and his spirit, if it's easy for you to hear this and not say, how can that be? You love me as the fathers loved you. 
You see, if Jesus tells me he loves me, I could probably come up with some definitions of love, which are almost believable. I can imagine Jesus cares about me. I can imagine that he wishes me well. I can imagine that he doesn't want me to suffer because all of those things are true in other people in the world. Other people who aren't Christians even often desire nothing bad happens to you, that you do okay in life. They actually can maybe care a little bit about you. We're not talking about another person in the world. We're not just talking about somebody else. We're saying the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity says, I love you as the father loves me. There is such weight to this. It's unfathomable. It's unthinkable. I can even believe that Jesus has a special regard for me that's friendly and caring in light of his cross. I can say Jesus loves me and I know because he died for me to save me from hell. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say I've saved you from destruction. He says I've saved you unto relationship. I've saved you from hell, but I've also reconciled you. And I love you even as the father loves me. That is mind blowing. Because I'm not eternal. I'm not sinless. I'm not I'm not God. How can God love me as God loves God? And I submit to you, if you look for the answer to that question in yourself, you're only ever going to find confusion and misery. And yet it's true. When you consider yourself, do you find anything within yourself that even remotely resembles the glory, the beauty, the loveliness and goodness of Jesus Christ? Do you find anything within you that persuades you to think that the God of the universe would find a reason to have affection for you? If you do, oh, your conscience is indeed seared. The truth expressed in this verse which ought to erupt in your soul and cause you to break down in tears at the very thought of it is that Christ's love for you is as everlasting, it's as unchangeable and eternal as God the Father's love for God the Son. This love, this unchanging, unending love. There's a song you may be familiar with that the lyrics to... Are pertinent at this point. I didn't want to try to quote it by memory. I'm not that sharp. But I do. I will read it for you. Think of these things. This love. Jesus says. As the Father has loved me. So have I loved you. Abide in my love. Listen to this. O love. That will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe. That in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead. 
And from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. People don't write like that anymore, do they? Glorious words. But there's this love that is eternal and will not let you go. That's the kind of love Jesus is talking about. The love that we're commanded to abide in is according to truth which has been revealed in Jesus Christ. I told you that this, which is supposed to captivate our gaze and influence our thoughts, move us in our emotions is according to truth. What truth, you ask? What truth lifts that head? That head is lifted by the truth of the cross, the hymn writer says. Jesus is telling us, and He's going on in our context. He's saying, abide in my love. Now, we're not there yet today, but hear this, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command, but before that... In verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying, abide in my love, abide in my love. What's your love, Jesus? I died for you is what he says. Abide in that reality. And it's not only some emotional picture in your head. There's truth that explains to you why it was necessary, why he died. It's the truth that sanctifies us. It's the truth of his death, his burial and his resurrection. But as I'm maintaining in our context, it's not merely remembering that that's true. It's the son of God by his spirit reminding you in in an experiential way that this gospel is true today. It wasn't only true when I believed it all those years ago, but it's true today. That is abiding in his love. It reminds me of Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if you're a Christian, if you have already at some point in your life been changed by God, you've believed the gospel already. And this is what he says. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of the right hand of God, excuse me, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you see, Paul's referring to something that happened in the past. If if then you have been raised, this is something that's already happened to you. But then he's appealing for the present, the now, the experience. If you've been raised right now, be seeking the things that are above where Christ currently is. He's not dead. He's not in the grave. He's currently there at the right hand of God. Be seeking those things. Set your minds on those things that are above. For you have died, but your life right now is hidden with Christ in God. You are presently hidden with Christ in God. Our minds and our affections are to be governed by this truth of Christ crucified and his salvation and our union with him. And the testimony of Scripture is this. You ever think about this? The testimony of Scripture in Revelation, the book of Revelation, is that for all eternity, all of God's people are going to be praising him, worshiping him as a lamb that's standing as if slain. That reality of his death, it's always there. He's standing. He's no longer dead, but he's as if slain. He did die. And that's that's the centerpiece of our worship. We say worthy is the lamb. Why? Because he died and he rose. 
That's the testimony that you're hearing. Abide in that love. But you've got to hear this. It's not just saying, good, I'm glad, I appreciate you dying for me, Jesus. But there's a personal and intimate connection with your soul here and now as you hear it. You're made to remember that in a way that touches you now. And it's not me doing the touching. It's not an impersonal thing. It's God by His Spirit touching you. That's why I read from the Psalm 42, the God, the living God, that I may appear before Him. I'm thirsting after a living connection with the living God. Verse 10, we press on. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, do you see how he's continuing the same parallel that he's been doing And the verse before? He says in verse uh, nine, as the fathers loved me, so have I loved you. So he's saying. The love, here's the Father, He loves me in the same way I love you. Now in our verse 10, He's saying, if, I, if, you, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Again, the parallel, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. You see, He's continuing this parallel of our relationship to the Son and the Son's relationship to the Father. Now I say that very intentionally because it would be very easy for us to look at this verse, and many people do this, many people do this, And to assume that Jesus is giving us a how-to on abiding in His love. That's not what He's saying. Let me demonstrate it to you from the text itself. If you look closely, you'll see that Jesus is once again giving us an indicative statement. An indicative statement. He's already... If you want to know what's the imperative in all this, abide in my love. Abide in me. The indicative is that if you keep my commandments, you will be one who is abiding in my love. And I don't just say that flippantly. It is true that whenever you disobey God, whenever you disobey Christ, you feel as though you're no longer abiding in His love. And in your own experience as a Christian, perhaps that is true. You've forgotten the love of God. You're living in disobedience because you're not living and stepping and moving in the light of His love and what He's done for you. But see this. See this in the text. The keeping of Christ's commandments is not the way in which we come to abide in His love. It is not the way. You see, I submit to you that even though when we've stepped out of bounds, we've we've been disobedient to God, the feeling that you have that tells you I'm not abiding in His love is itself a testimony that His love is still yet abiding on you. We've seen the Father promises, I'm going to prune you. I love you, I'm going to prune you. And part of that pruning is allowing the the, the disobedient sinner who is saved by the grace of God to feel their disobedience. To be moved by it. To feel that there's a relational issue between me and my father, which will drive you back to that relationship. Get this if you don't get anything. You see, it is our, as we considered in the beginning, feelings can never become the source of truth or authority. 
And think of this. If your feelings were authoritative, if they were binding, then you, every single day of your life, would lose your salvation. If feeling lost means you're lost, that's hopeless. We discussed some in the Sunday school about the, the Protestant Reformation and even the 1689 written to, to really confront and challenge Roman Catholic error. One of the greatest errors in the Roman Catholic Church is that you can never have final and full assurance that you are forgiven, that you have peace with God. That always you're having to go back again to the priest, again to confession, again and again and again. And even after all that, you still might go to purgatory. This Christian message says, no, it's finished. You're secure. And the feeling you have that the relationship is off is God lovingly working in you. Your conviction of sin ought to remind you God does love you. But if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You see, I mentioned there's a parallel between Jesus, his relationship to the Father, and us in our relationship to Christ. Consider this parallel in light of what I just told you. The connection between our keeping commandments and abiding His love is directly parallel with Jesus keeping commandments and abiding in the Father's love. Now let me ask you this. Did Jesus Christ obey His Father in order to abide in the Father's love? Can Jesus say, I'm abiding in the Father's love because I wasn't before, but now that I've kept His commandments, now I get to? No. No. This one, this eternal everlasting relationship who always loved His Father, it's His love for His Father which is producing the obedience. The obedience and the fruit are demonstrating and proving the love. Jesus was not desperately striving to earn a love that he did not already know. Now there is surely an inseparable relationship between keeping commandments and abiding in his love. And disobedience is an indication that you're not connecting with God's love for you in the moment that you disobey. But the driving force behind all true obedience is that we are loved, not so that we will be. You don't Serve, seek to live after God in order to know God's love. You who know God's love are driven by that love. That's the parallel Jesus is drawing in these things. Verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now this final verse it continues to verify what I was just telling you. What we're just seeing. Jesus expressly says His purpose in saying all of this has been that His joy be in you and that your joy would be full. The first thing this means is that you would be experiencing this joy now. He says that my joy may be in you. And this is something you're actually experiencing. He says that it would be in you, not outside of you. He's not saying this joy is something you merely hope to have someday in the distant future. Whenever all your financial troubles are gone and your spouse loves you rightly and your, your kids love you and your relationships are all right. He's saying that you would experience this joy is going to be in you as a result of what's going on in you and not outside of you. That's the first thing, that my joy would be in you. The second thing about this joy 
is that it would be full and complete. That your joy may be full. That's going too far, isn't it? Okay, Jesus wants me to have joy, but fullness of joy? Nothing but joy in me? How can that be? Well, we take this in the context of other scriptures like Paul writing about being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And rejoicing in trials and suffering. And a broken hearted kind of pain that still rejoices in God. And yet, this joy is to be full. What does that mean? Well, that is not to say that we will not have a greater degree of experience of joy in heaven. But I believe it's because our capacity for joy will be greater in heaven. Why? There'll be no sin. There'll be nothing keeping us from the joy that awaits us. Now there are things that hinder our joy, but Jesus is essentially saying that you, that your joy would be as full as it can be. That nothing else, nothing else is going to give you this joy. This means that any other pursuit of joy, of satisfaction, of peace, and encouragement in the whole world, other than that which he's describing, is going to leave you lacking. That's the nature of the joy we're talking about. Now, in light of all that, what possible sense would it make if Jesus says, I've told you all this so that your joy be full? And the meaning is, you need to go work at keeping commandments to prove to yourself that you're a Christian. That is absolutely stupid. That's not what he's saying. If your joy is full because of your own commandment keeping, repent of your self-worship. The joy Jesus is talking about is not ultimately come from anything you have done, but a knowledge of the truth of what God has done in you and for you and through you. The fruit, even the fruit itself, the joy we have at fruit bearing is because God is doing something in me. He's producing this in me. See, the joy Jesus was referring to only only comes as a result of abiding in him. Jesus, he is the prize that does not disappoint. The scripture refers to this. Jesus is the pearl of great price. He is the one, the gospel message. Jesus himself is like that treasure hid in a field. When the man stumbles upon it, he sells all that he has in order to have it. There's nothing greater, nothing more joyous than this one, this Jesus. Psalm 16 and verse 11. And again, you see how this comes full circle to our beginning thoughts. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. And if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. He is the desire of your heart. Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The joy Jesus is describing comes from a relationship and having been reconciled to Him. Our joy is meant to come from experiencing the glory of God in the presence of Christ according to His Word. And if you're abiding in Him and in His Word and in His love, it's going to produce fruit to the glory of God the Father by the Holy Spirit's working in you. And that is something to be joyful at. But you must start with abiding in Him. If you try to circumvent Christ in any way, you're not going to arrive at this joy. If you try to seek after an experience of the Holy Spirit's working in you apart from Jesus, you're not going to end well. It's not going to go well with you. You're going to be like those folks 
We sprinkle glitter from the ceiling to try to trick people into thinking there's angel dust. You have to manipulate and stir up your emotions because the truth has not been so implanted in your heart and soul by Jesus himself. Is it any coincidence that the Lord Jesus is the word in the beginning was the word and it's the word that brings this life and joy. He is the source of all joy and eternal satisfaction, and it comes from knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ in his son. Here's my final question in charge to you. How are you going to get this joy? How are you going to have this? How is it in all of this when Jesus is saying the love that is set before you is an eternal, holy, righteous, sinless, Trinitarian love? And you say, how is it that I get to have that? What has God done to provide this? The simple answer, the message we live on, is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. To reconcile us to God. Something that's been constantly repeated to me. And it's true in light of this abiding relationship. As we say that Jesus and Him crucified is our message. And it is our hope. But the question we're left constantly asking is, why? Why did He go to the cross? Why did He suffer and die? And someone says, so that I don't go to hell. And I say, well, that's good. But is that all? Jesus says to reconcile you to the Father, that you would be abiding in me. If you say I have confidence that I'm not going to hell and you're not abiding in Jesus. Oh, that's nothing more than vain religion. It's trying to escape punishment without seeing that the reason we sin, the reason we sin is because we're sinners and the reason we're sinners is because we're rebels. And we're rebels because we have been separated from God. And the end of this gospel is not only to deliver you, it's not only to save you from judgment, but it's to reunite you with the one you were made to love and know and serve. Abide in Him. You see, we have been made partakers. Now this, you want to talk about a scripture that if I just said it and didn't tell you it was scripture, you might think, that's heresy. We've been made partakers of the divine nature. God has done so. Our relationship to the Father is, is so united and intertwined with His Son. We're in Him. You're actually viewed and treated by God with no less love than His only begotten Son. The charge is to repent. To see your sin is not only a notice from God that says, hey, you haven't kept the standard or that you've messed up a little bit. Your sin is saying to you, you're separated from God as a rebel to God and you must be reconciled. If you repent, if you turn from that and believe this gospel. Joy awaits you. A knowledge of real love awaits you. As Christians, let us be committed to abiding in this. When my soul is not consciously aware of the love of Christ for me, you know it's okay for me to say with the psalmist, my soul thirsts for God as in a dry land, as a deer pants for water. I'm thirsting for God and I'm not aware of God as I know I, I want to be. It's okay for us to say, God, remind me who you are according to your word, 
that I might be abiding in you. I pray that this truth would remain with us. That our hope would be fixed on the promises of God's word. And we would trust him. Bow with me and we'll go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. I thank you for your kindness to us. Oh God, that we would know your love. That we would be those who have experienced and tasted and seen your mercies in your Son. That we wouldn't be left having to work ourselves up to some vain worship, but it would be an overflow of a heart that has been moved by truth. Oh God, I thank you for your son and for calling us sons and daughters because of him. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.